a broad market perspective, there's probably not a big difference, to be frank. However, uh, the issue comes down to whether the homeowner or investor wants to assume the risk, right? Got As it. I mentioned, okay. the risk of getting shut down uh, from the city, from a neighbor complaint or a tenant complaint, or if it's not done with inspection and not done legally, should there be an accident like a fire or something? That's a huge liability uh, potentially for that investor. Welcome to the Deals Estate Wholesaling Podcast, where we discuss finding financing, and facilitating off-market real estate deals. I'm your host, Deja Dunton, and I'm joined today on the show by Andy Tran to discuss and share his knowledge on how you can find properties with conversion and housing densification upside. Now, a little bit about Andy. Andy is a registered house and small business designer. He's also a real estate investor and a developer. He holds a degree in architectural science from Ryerson University in Toronto. He founded Sweet Additions, which is a company that has assisted investors and homeowners in converting over 300 single-family homes to contain legal additional suites since 2015. His company's mission is to help people gain financial security through these various housing densification strategies. In today's episode, Andy and I discuss what all the hype about conversions and housing densification is all about. We discussed common mistakes or pitfalls that real estate investors make when doing conversion projects. And we also discuss how to navigate the city permitting and regulatory landscape when undertaking these projects. So guys, you do not want to miss this episode. Sit back and listen to the very end. Now, before we dive in, Again, we want to say a big thank you to everyone who is tuning in. If you are a fan of this podcast, please like and subscribe to the podcast and hit that notification button. That would be greatly appreciated. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the Deals Estate Wholesaling Podcast. Hey, Deji. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Thank you very much for coming on and thank you for your flexibility in making this session work. I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have today. Absolutely. Let's go. Cool. So it's actually interesting because a lot of people know this podcast as a wholesaling podcast. And as you know, wholesaling is really the art of you know finding discounted deals, off-market deals, and the exit of assigning it to an investor. But it's interesting because when wholesalers are finding deals or when investors are looking for deals, there's quite a number of things that you take into account in looking for a deal. And why I think this episode is very important is because there's quite a number of exit options that I think nowadays, given the interest rates and you know the market that we're in, I think there's a lot of exit options now that seem to be you know the right option to go with. And you know that's why we're having this conversation today. So again, thank you very much for you're coming on here, you know, to share your experience. Um, but before we dive in, if you could share with everyone, you know, who Andy Tran is, um, you know, how you got into real estate and what you do today. Sure. Yeah. So um, just a little bit about myself. So uh, my background, I studied uh, architectural design um, way back uh, from Ryerson University and uh, did some design and, and worked for a contractor for a little while. I actually got into the home inspection industry in the 2000s and, uh, and, um, around the late sort of late 2000s, um, I really started ex started uh, exploring uh, different options in real estate investing. And at the same time, while I was working uh, in the um, home inspection industry, I was actually assisting a lot of home inspection clients with information on converting to secondary suites. And yep. at the time, I didn't have a lot of experience with it. So I did a lot of research. I actually went through the process myself on my own property. Okay. And uh, during that process, and at the same time, I started investing myself in single family homes starting in 2010. Uh, it made a lot of sense to me that this is something that was going to be a necessity going forward, given where real estate prices uh, were were going, uh, yep. you know, I guess, 10, 15 years ago. And you know, the rest is history in terms of where the real estate market has gone. And it 
adding additional suites has been even more important um, since then, right? Yeah. So in terms of the background is, um, you know, once I had uh, seen that this was a viable business, I moved out of the home inspection industry. I was actually working in their education department for a company in Toronto called Carson Dunlop. And uh, once I saw the opportunity, I said, you know, working in the design and consulting space with conversions to second suites, additional suites, and now we're seeing garden suites as well to be a very lucrative opportunity. And in addition to investors and homeowners being able to profit very well from these types of strategies, uh, it also helps the community by providing more housing units. And uh, so we started in 2015 and we've been pretty much nonstop ever since in the past eight years. Okay, perfect. Thank you very, very much for that summary. Now, you touched on it a little bit about you know why it's important for investors to focus on this strategy. But if you could maybe break that down for us, like in today's market, given you know the prices of homes, yeah, it's come down, but just like relative to years back, given the interest rate hikes, you know, can you share with us your thoughts on the importance of you know housing diversification strategies for real estate investors and how that can you know help them stay afloat and manage the housing prices today? Sure. Yeah. So I'll uh, explain the importance of it using the example of my property, my first single family detached property that I purchased in Hamilton in 2010. So okay. when I purchased that property, I was able to rent it out for the entire home for $1,500 a month. It was a rent to own program. Okay. I was able to allocate $200 towards the tenant for a potential future purchase through that rent to own program. And I yep. still had $200 left in cash flow, right? Okay. That's pretty incredible when you really look at those, uh, you know, what you were able to do. I guess that was, uh, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And, yep. you know, the numbers have changed incredibly since then. And nowadays, uh, you know, you cannot even cash flow with one single unit, which is why starting in the mid 2000s, when we started the business, it was pretty much standard that when you purchase an investment property with a single family home, if you wanted to have cash flow, you would have to add in that second unit. Yeah. And that's why it made a lot of sense. And since then, since the mid, uh, you know, 20 teens, 2015 till now, prices have con- continued to escalate where we're looking for even further creative strategies to make the numbers work. And and of course, with the policy being changed to allow for more densification, such as being able to provide three units minimum, garden suites, and multiplexes in Toronto, uh, it's it's something that uh, is not only a necessity for investors to be able to cash flow, uh, it is also a, a great demand from the marketplace, right? And uh, so this is something that we see as a huge opportunity for investors who can identify these opportunities to have a significant competitive advantage over other uh, people that are also looking for the properties. Perfect. So one of the questions that we had today was obviously how to identify these types of properties. But mm-hmm. before we get there, you know, like there's, there's quite a number of changes, as you've mentioned, in terms of policies that are happening. There was a big push about Bill 23, um, also like the changes in, in, in Toronto. From your standpoint, like, there's the federal changes between 23, there's the you know, city changes. Where do you see a lot of these um, changes happen? You know, are they happening more around like the federal level? Are they happening around cities? Is it only Toronto? Like, what are your thoughts in terms of how cities in Ontario and just in Canada are moving, you know, um, in line with a lot of these policies and how it affects investors? Sure. Yeah. So the, uh, the big policy drivers from the provincial level. Uh, we saw that in 2012 when they mandated that every municipality with, uh, at the time it was Bill 140, requiring every municipality to allow secondary suites as legal. Yep. So before 2012, it was really only the city of Toronto that had that uh, bylaw in place, whereas other right. cities had the opportunity to say no to second suites. So 2012 was when the province uh, pushed for t- second suites. And yep. you mentioned Bill 23 recently. Uh, to push for three units. So essentially what the province has done was step in and said that uh, every city now needs to allow for a minimum of three units. uh, And at least one of those units needs to be a detached uh, accessory dwelling unit or garden suite, as we call them commonly. 
Uh, so cities can no longer say no to three units. It's really up to them, though, as to exactly how they're going to implement them in terms of some of the bylaws. Okay. It, it, it'll dictate things like the unit sizes, lot size requirements, minimum parking mandates, things like that. Uh, the city will have the ability to, to do them. So the push really we see is comes from the provincial level, but there are some municipalities themselves that are very progressive and they see this as an opportunity to provide more housing in their community, which is desperately needed in every city and town in Ontario. Yeah. Uh, and then also potential uh, revenue generator in the form of property taxes and hopefully economic growth down the road. Okay. And from a city level, if you were to mention like the top three cities or maybe the top five, if they're even up to five, the top cities that, as you mentioned, are really progressive right now, are really like, you know, slamming the accelerator, like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Mm-hmm. What three, which three cities would you, would you echo? Um, well, I can really only speak to my own experience. Uh, okay. And, uh, you know, Ontario is a big, is a big province. Uh, I've only done work in the Golden Horseshoe. So I can only speak to those cities. I probably worked with a couple of dozen municipalities here in the Golden Horseshoe. Uh, So from a practical standpoint, you know, every city has its pros and cons. Um, You know, every city has its challenges with growth and in ensuring that they have adequate resources uh, in order to facilitate all of these changes and all of this growth and and all all of the policy changes, right? So many cities are doing the best that they can. So in our experience, we find that the three cities that um, are, are more progressive uh, and we've had a good experience, um, you know, overall, right? I'll, again, there's always challenges, uh, is uh, the city of Toronto, Hamilton and Kitchener. And those are the primary markets that we, we work on right now. Uh, exactly for that reason is because they are progressive. They have the policies in place and we're very familiar with the things that they're looking for. And are able to uh, comply with their with their mandates uh, for these types of um, uh, housing options. Okay, and and by progressive, you mean, for example, like speed of getting the permits, or like the cost, or like the clarity of the bylaws, or what would you consider like a progressive city? Sure. Yeah. So when I say progressive, I mean all those points that you had mentioned are valid, and uh, they you know, at some level have been able to address all of those things. But I would say when I, when I mean progressive, I mean from a uh, uh, city planning perspective, uh, housing okay. planning, uh, they are progressive in allowing more densification and recognizing the importance of uh, being able to utilize the existing low-rise infrastructure in the city and providing more housing units with that existing infrastructure. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, so there are municipalities, and I actually won't name them, but there are municipalities <laughs> that are not as keen as those, you know, the ones that I mentioned, like Toronto, Hamilton, Kitchener. They're not as keen as those cities when it comes to uh, densification. They m- would much rather prefer them to keep the neighborhoods as is and would rather expand outward. Okay. In our opinion, though, spend, expanding outward is not um, sustainable. Yeah. Uh, from mostly from a financial perspective. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So if an investor, you know, was listening to this and they're like, you know, Hamilton, Kitchener, Toronto, I would focus on these cities. But how do I even know what I'm looking for? You know, what types of properties fit this criteria? Well, I can certainly uh, direct them to my YouTube channel and website for more information as to what things to look for. But to answer that question at a very high level, um, there are a number of things that you want to look for. You want to look for the lot sizes. You want to look at the housing type to see if it's conducive to doing a conversion. Right? Yeah. Obviously, if you had a large home with a big footprint and you have a large basement, that would make sense for a basement second suite. If you have a large backyard or a nice corner lot, that would uh, facilitate a the construction of a um, a, a good sized um, gardening suite or or accessory dwelling unit, then that would make sense, right? Yeah. So that's that's you know physical lots would be one of the primary things you would look for. Physical property. Yeah. Of course, you want to ensure that you're in the correct zone. Yeah. Now the the policies that we mentioned, Bill Twenty Three, 
four additional units. They're targeting a lot of the really low-rise suburban neighborhoods, right? So your typical R1 neighborhood, yep. where mostly all you see is detached homes, semi-detached homes, townhouses. Um, those are the areas that they're targeting for more densification um, for you know three units, including including the garden suite. So all things being equal, you want to have a larger lot uh, that will allow you to you know create more housing units in a comfortable manner where you can have multiple occupants and they're not they don't feel like they're kind of all jammed into you know one tiny little property, right? Okay, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And if we were to dive into you know like the types of renovations that are involved in like a conversion project, like are they different to the standard renovation projects? Like if I wanted to just renovate like a single family property and maybe put a sec- like a secondary unit or not a legal unit, just like an in suite versus I was doing a conversion project, like a one to two, maybe a one to three, or maybe like a garden suite. Like how do you see those projects differing in terms of like, the rental scope, the rental costs, and also like the skill sets that are involved in actually doing the job. Yeah, so there's a lot of confusion around this, right? So especially what you just mentioned there, an in-law suite. Um, from the building code perspective, there's really no such thing as a uh, an in-law suite that is not a an additional unit, that is not an additional dwelling unit. The fact is, if you have two separate kitchens, it is automatically determined to be a separate dwelling unit. Oh, right? I see. Okay. So from that standpoint, the you would have to comply with all the building code requirements. So you would have to have proper fire separation. You would have to have proper smoke alarms uh, and carbon monoxide detectors, uh, proper egress requirements for each dwelling unit. So there is a lot of confusion around that because the term in, in-law suite uh, versus, let's say, a, a duplex or a accessory dwelling unit. You know, sometimes these are phrases that are um, at the city planning department, not really at the building code, right? Yep. So, whenever someone approaches us and say they want to put in an in-law suite or or another unit with a with a kitchen in it, then we automatically say that you're you're adding in additional units. So you're converting a single family to two or you're converting two families to three or one to three or whatever whatever way you're doing it. Um, so the, the renovation is going to be the same, right? You want to have the proper separation. Now, if you're doing a standard finished basement, for example, where uh, you have a, 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 you know, a recreational room or a family room, there's no kitchen, maybe there's a bathroom, then yeah. that does not require the extent of renovation that would be required compared to a, a another unit with, with a kitchen, right? So, you know, you might see a basement recreational room where you have ceiling tile. Um, sometimes they're not even finished. So there's no problems, um, you know, as long as you don't have a sep- separate unit, okay? Okay. Now, if you do have a separate unit, again, it's, it's going to vary quite a bit. The costs are going to be substantially different because you don't have those safety and... Uh, uh, safety and, and property standards as dictated by the code that are that would be involved. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, it does. So if I could play this back as a wholesaler, for example, if I walk into a property and I see that the basement or the additional dwelling unit has a kitchen, mm-hmm. that that already tells me that the re- the, the budgets for that renovation must include the things like fire separation, like the four nine yards. But if it doesn't have a kitchen, then the budget might not necessarily be as extensive and as as expensive. Yeah, yeah. But the the idea is that you want to add in that kitchen for the additional revenue, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I would still say that in my experience, probably a majority of the additional units, mostly in the basement with kitchens, are probably not legal. Uh, and um, depending on the municipality and their enforcement policies, that may or may not be an issue. But in every city that we've worked with, uh, there have been, like I have had a, a sizable portion of my clients contact me because they've had a neighbor file a complaint or they had a tenant file a complaint 
Got and it. the city came and said, you know, you have to convert this legally or, you know, we're going to shut your unit down. Right. So um, basically, yeah, if you're if you're looking to add in a kitchen, you should potentially whether it's there or not already, you should potentially budget for it um, so that you don't have that problem. Right now, it's, at yep. the end of the day, it's up to the investor. You know, we're not here to say what you should do. We're just here to provide the information. Yeah. Sometimes we go out, we do a consultation, we do a detailed, you know, one, two hour consultation on site and the homeowner or investor decide, hey, you know what, this is not a legal unit. Um, I'm not going to go through this process. I'm going to kind of play things by ear. That's yeah. totally, you know, that's that's totally up to them. Right. So they assume that risk. We're here just to provide them with the information and then they can decide if they want to proceed forward or not. Oh, got it. In your experience, right? So. There's three metrics that I would like to share with you. And in your experience, I would just like to know how, you know, the legality of the second unit impacts those metrics. So, you know, one is how much you can rent the unit for. So a legal second suite versus, you know, it's not like legal. It probably doesn't have the right fire suppression and, and the right code. You know, do you see a massive variance in what you can actually rent both units for? That's one. The second would be like if you are selling the property. So I'm selling a property with an illegal suite that someone can live in, you know, on the mm-hmm. down low mm-hmm. versus I'm selling a property with an actual legal suite. Do you mm-hmm. see differences in what the sale price would be on the market? And then the third one would be, refinance if i'm actually refinancing a building would the lender you know give me a significant bump because the suite is legal versus it's like you know you're you're getting rent from this might not be legal maybe it's only an uplift of ten thousand dollars like do you see that the roi is there for an investor to actually go through the full end process of legalizing the suites like yeah so i'll try to answer those first two questions yeah. Uh, the um, the answer that I provide might actually be relevant for those first two questions. So in terms of rent and purchase, okay. I would say that the majority of the population, so the general population, are really not aware of the difference between legal and illegal, right? Got it. Um, they're relying a lot on their realtors, and a lot of their realtors don't have the answers. And so, you know, the reality is that if you're just looking at it strictly from a numbers perspective, then... Um, it may not make a difference, actually, right? If let's say you have one unit here that is legal and they spent the extra few thousand dollars to go through the design process and go through the inspections, and then the other one here where they've done the same renovation, but they didn't get a permit and they didn't do the inspections, from a visual standpoint, they're going to look exactly the same. And how many tenants are going to ask you, is this legal or not? A lot of them don't even know. A lot of them assume it's legal, right? Yeah. And that goes also with selling, purchasing, right? Somebody, a purchaser, they not, they're not going to know the difference that one is legal and one is illegal unless they're savvy and they've, you know, watched our content and they know <laughs> right? Um, so from a broad market perspective, there's probably not a big difference, to be frank. However, uh, the issue comes down to whether the homeowner or investor wants to assume the risk. Right. Got As it. I mentioned, okay. the risk of getting shut down uh, from the city, from a neighbor complaint or a tenant complaint, or if it's not done with inspection and not done legally, should there be an accident like a fire or something? That's a huge liability uh, potentially for that investor. So see. now, regardless of whether you want to do it legally or illegally, you probably want to make sure it's safe. You want to make sure you have egress windows for people to escape. You want to make sure you have a proper fire separation. You want to make sure you have proper smoke and fire alarms, uh, carbon monoxide alarms and things like that, right? So really, you know, the renovation, whether it's legal or illegal, is probably going to be the same. The difference in cost would be obviously hiring a designer, an architect, to do the work and the city permits, right? So typically that's going to be an additional five to $10,000 to go through that process. Um, so most people that we work with anyways, don't have any issues with spending that extra to have that peace of mind, right? Yeah. yeah. So that answer is really the first two. The last one is whether uh, the lenders will consider legal and important consideration when they're doing a refinance. And I will say that that is something we've seen over the past few years as being more of an issue. So we've had 
many clients ask us, how do I get a registration, like a zoning, um, a verification report or a, regist a registry showing that my, legal, uh, my unit's now legal. So I would always advise them to obtain something from the city, whether it's a, an official document like a zoning verification report, whether it's on a, uh, an official registry, or yep. whether it's a simple uh, email from the inspector or the building department say that you, you know, you've passed your inspection, you have final occupancy, and you combine that with your permit drawings and your permit document, that's going to be enough to indicate that it's legal. And a lot of people have provided that documentation to their lender. And the lender will look at that and say, okay, this is a legal unit. Now, in terms of the difference, I don't know what the exact number is, but it is higher, I can say. I can't give you any numbers, but I can say with experience that uh, in general, the numbers have been higher for legal units versus illegal units from a refinance perspective. Got it. Okay. Thank you for that. So outside of an investor not doing the permits or not going through the permitting process, if you were to share from your experience the common pitfalls that investors make when taking on these projects, um, what would you say those pitfalls are? When doing looking for projects where they're looking to do a conversion? Yeah. So um, it could be when they are looking for the projects, it could be yeah. in maybe misrepresenting what can be done you know so for mm -hmm. example you know i'm looking at the project and i'm thinking you know what i think i can sever this lot mm -hmm. and then i go firm now i can't sever the lots you know mm -hmm. like from your standpoint like do you see common issues that 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 keep recurring from your experience where you know you could consider these as pitfalls or you know just mistakes that investors make um that your business essentially helps them to you know um, sure yeah I would say the most common pitfall that is not, um, you know, it's not um, a huge game changer, but it is yeah. a setback for a lot of people is that they may make a purchase above what the value of the property is. So they may see a, a house with a, you know, a, a finished basement. Maybe there's a kitchen in there. And to them, it looks like everything meets the requirements and they can rent it out for X dollars. And then they get us in there and we tell them that if they want to legalize it, they have to do this work. The contractor goes in and quotes them and they're kind of, you know, they're kind of, um, uh, they have a little bit of a setback because they didn't expect to spend the extra, you know, whatever it is, $7,500,000 uh, because they assumed that the previous seller that had done the work had everything compliant already. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, it's already finished, but, you know, the wiring is in bad shape. The plumbing's in bad shape. They don't have proper fire separation. So that would say, I would say that's probably the most common pitfall is, is people have, they, they make these purchases without knowing the level of, of quality of the work that was done previously. You know, there's a lot of, you know, really bad uh, contractors out there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of homeowners that, do the work themselves. Yep. And um, you have to be very careful because some of them will even, you know, put in fire rated drywall and put in an egress window and they'll call it legal. And unless you have a permit from the city, there's no way it, you can call it legal, right? So obviously that's a liability on their part, but it also is an issue for the novice investor who goes in and listens to, you know, the, the seller or the realtor saying that this is a legal unit. So unless you have the document to prove it, um, it's not right. Yep. I would yep. say that's probably the most common pitfall. And then you mentioned, you know, severability and things like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes people go in and they say, uh, you know, I should be able to sever this property, but it's not that easy because it's not a, it's not an as of right process with the city. You always have to go through, um, a particular process, whether it's, you know, a minor variance or a consent application, there are a lot of steps and then your neighbors get involved as well. Um, so I would say that that would be a good, um, you know, if, if you have that as your target, but always yep. have a backup plan, right? Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned that there is a document that you should essentially get, you know, to confirm the status of illegal suite. And I imagine that, again, once you go through the permitting process, the city gives you a document that certifies that this is illegal. Um, 
basement or, or legal suite. So that that's the document that you're referring to that, you know, if you are buying a property with the expectation and the understanding that this is a, a basically a legal suite, you should have that document that certifies that from the city. Yeah, yeah. So we advise our clients to always obtain some documentation when they complete their project so that in the future, if they're refinancing or if they're selling their property to have that available, right? Yeah. Um, most people who actually have those that information will happily present it to a buyer because it means the higher that means the the value of the property is going to be higher, right? Got it. Uh, you know, if you are looking at a property and you're asking and they don't have anything or they're just saying that it, it's legal and take my word for it, usually <laughs> it's not, right? So, um, yeah, most people that have the documentation would happily provide it. Okay, and in terms of timelines, you know. You- you mentioned that it would be like an additional five to ten thousand dollars for the permitting process for the designer, but another thing that I I know that um, you know could could potentially pose as a concern is the duration of the permitting process because that that drives the holding cost. Now, if I took a private mortgage to close on a property, and then I'm paying like five thousand dollars a month, and I I'm, I'm, I'm I I believe okay this is going to take two months and it takes like twelve months. Now I'm in for like you know sixty k versus like ten yeah. k. So like what are your thoughts in terms of like the duration, the average duration of these types of projects across these major cities that you see that are very progressive? Sure. Yeah. So um, that's definitely a valid concern. And uh, yeah, I mean, those, that's one thing that you have to factor in, right. Is the additional holding costs as a result of delays. Now with the city, a lot, you know, it's outside of our control. Uh, but, you know, we, we generally have a good handle on how long it's going to take. And most conversions that are simple conversions, like basement suites, um, most of the time they're within two to three months that you'll be able to get your permit from the time that you start the process. Okay. And then, and then your other stuff really comes down to your own experience, right? With with construction. So if your expectation was that the construction was going to take two months and then it took twelve months, well, what's the issue there? Who dropped the ball? Was it a contractor? Was it the investor, right? Um, was it that the investor didn't do their due diligence with the contractor? That's that's that is the um, that is the um, the issue in a lot of cases, and so it would be more risky for a new investor, of course, if they don't have the experience. And this is why they you know they want to you want to make sure that uh, for your uh, your audience who are on the more uh, inexperienced side is to make sure they get proper referrals and and things like that. Uh, but over time, the investor should be able to tighten up their timelines. Uh, you know, a little bit of flexibility with the city, but okay. allocating, say, two to three months with the city. And then, uh, of course, adding time working with the designer. And then working with their contractor to make sure that they stay within a certain time frame right and making yep. sure making sure those numbers work again whether you go through the city process or not the contracting is going to be the same right so really yep. it's the addition of the cost as you mentioned the five to ten thousand dollars and then uh, potentially another two to three months in in holding time right so you have to kind of look and see is that additional timeline and the additional cost worth it in the long run especially if you're holding the property for a long duration got it and um- as much as there's variability in in the quotes that you get from from contractors, like a typical basement suit conversion, like in today's market with today's rates, um, like what would it cost on an on just a wide range for an investor who is converting like um, a single family to a duplex? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Um, there's a lot of factors involved, right? Um, it's a moving target. I, I'll probably give you, I'll throw out a, a ballpark number out there, but there's it, it varies quite a bit. It varies on the size. Obviously, depending on the size, the per, per square footage price comes down. Um, uh, depends on you know what additional work needs to be done. Is there additional utility work? Yeah. Uh, increasing electricity, increasing plumbing requirements, heating systems, uh, various different factors. Depends on the market as well that you're doing the project in. 
but a very rough range would probably be the 125 to $150 per square foot range for a very typical basement second suite uh, that is kind of middle of the road investor grade, durable, uh, simple, standard type of renovation. Got it. Okay. All right, cool. So if an investor was looking to take down a conversion project and they came to your business, you know, how do you guys typically help with the process from end to end? Like if, if you were to walk us through that end to end process of where your company comes in, um, is it in the initial due diligence phase? Is it in the um, phase when I'm buying the property? Is it when I go firm? Like at what points do you guys essentially start your process? Uh, so our process starts when uh, typically when they have the offer accepted, right? So okay. we try to do our best to educate people through our various um, online content and the seminars that we do and podcasts such as this to educate people as much as possible or direct them to areas where they can get educated and that their realtors also get educated and find property. Yep. And uh, we take we basically jump in at the point of uh, when their offer is ex- accepted. Uh, typically, uh, you know, during that closing period, we advise them to get a, a long closing period. We go on site, do measurements, uh, provide them with conceptual designs, work with them on the design and the permit drawings, and then we submit the, the documents on their behalf with the city. And we communicate with the city until they get those uh, permits approved. And then from there, they, you know, take the uh, uh, the baton and basically work with their contractor for the rest of the project. And we're there in the background as a, uh, as a coach or consultant uh, to guide them through the process uh, during that construction renovation period. So that's kind of our scope of work um, in, in, uh, in, in a typical project. Okay. There's one question that I wanted to get clarity on, which for me, like is very inundating, which is the city permitting process. So I don't know if it's the documentation, like the zoning bylaws, um, you know, when you go into those documents, you see a lot of numbers, you see like square meters, square foot, you know, like um, minimum lot size, maximum lot size. Like there's just a lot of numbers, um, you know, that you need to sort of go through and then just engaging the city, knowing who to call, you know, are you calling the planning department? You know, like what questions to ask in that whole process? Like, you know, can you prov- provide us insights into like how investors can work better with the cities? You know, um, how to essentially do that due diligence with the cities um, and just that whole process of like the city permitting process and any regulatory considerations? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anybody can go and get that information. Um you know, unfortunately, most cities and towns don't do a great job of providing the information in a manner that is easy for the the layperson to read. Uh, you know, a lot of it is very uh, written in a, in a in a format, whether it's the building code, whether it's the bylaws, uh, in a way that only professionals can understand. But some cities will provide you know little cheat sheets or things on their yep. website that highlights the um, that highlights kind of the uh, the the main points right so i would urge people that really want to understand it is to uh become familiar with the this the the city website for that particular municipality that they're working with and i would urge people to kind of at the beginning anyways stick with one city or town that they're familiar yeah. that they're comfortable investing in and become familiar with them and then uh there's a, you know go through the website first try to get as much information absorb as much information and then if there's anything that you don't understand you can send them an email or give them a call to get clarity but it takes time right yeah it's not something that you can spend just an hour or two and expect to be able to really fully understand it uh, it takes time to understand it takes a lot of um, you know communication and for us I mean it took years for us to really become familiar with the handful of municipalities that we're working with and their exact process right got um, it. So that's why a lot of people hire us is because we have that, we speak their language and we have that experience. We know, you know, when we're going in and submitting a permit document for um, the city of Hamilton, we know that we're submitting a, you know, a water sewer application. We know that, uh, you know, if it's a, um, 
a design for, for a new heating system, we'll have to submit HVAC uh, drawings. We may need to submit structural documents. Uh, sometimes we have to call the forestry department, the engineering department, the parking department. Um, that's really where our leverage is, is because we have that experience to help the investor save time. But yep. they can certainly obtain that information on their own and work with the city. And a lot of people do. Uh, we work with a lot of homeowners and investors that really want to be involved in the process because they want to learn. Uh, and that's totally fine. And, and we definitely uh, encourage and welcome them to be part of that process. Okay, perfect. So I know we are nearing the end of the episode. I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, maybe your your most interesting or your best um, conversion projects. You know, like I've heard like wild projects in the past. Like I think I saw one like a few days ago, like one building to like 10 units. Like yeah, that's I it. Know, I think <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah. whoa, like that, that is like huge. You know, but um, from your standpoint, from your experience, um, you know, are there any projects that you've done that maybe were just like, mind-blowing we're just amazing we're just like unique that you'd like to share you know, just to give investors like an understanding of, of of how big this is sure yeah um yeah I've, I've done a handful of projects where we were able to take singles or multiple singles and convert them to to multiple units um so we've uh, done a, in the Niagara region we've worked on a couple of projects where we purchased um, a single family home severed the lot so the single family home, we converted that to a two unit and then we severed uh, additional, I think, yeah, for both projects, we, uh, uh, we turned one lot into three lots and, and built semi-detached homes. And within those semi-detached homes, we built two units in each one of them. So there was one where we converted one unit to six units. There was another project we did three. It was uh, actually, no, it was two lots to four lots. And the existing house was three units, and then we converted. We built a, an additional semi-detached home with a basement suite, and uh, that. So we basically converted three units to eight, uh, three units to seven units. Well, yeah, three units to seven units. Okay. <laughs> so that involved severance, which is a more complicated process because we have to go through uh, what's called a consent application for for severance. Um, one of those projects, we we had we got rejected from the Committee of Adjustments and had to go through the Ontario Land Tribunal. So that process had extended the, uh, the 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 whole project, but it was fine because you know we were in a bull market at the time from around 2018 to 2020, roughly. Yeah, so we yeah. did fairly well on that project. Um, I'm currently working on a one unit to a five unit in the city of Toronto. Oh, now. Nice. I've pivoted a little bit. So, you know, back between 2017 to, I would say, 2021, I would say we were really focused on trying to acquire properties that we could convert the existing home, sever, and then build more. Uh, but now with all of these policy changes, Bill 23 and what's happened in Toronto with the multiplex policy, a lot of this, a lot of these projects now can be done as of right, meaning you don't even have to go through a minor variance. Right, a lot okay. of the parking minimums have been removed. So the project right now that I'm working on in Toronto, where we're trying to convert one unit, one housing unit into five, um, the intent is actually to not do it in a way that would trigger a minor variance. And and we see that opportunity now because of the policy changes. And we're, I would say, we're in the early stages still, um, yep. for now and in the next few years, to be able to utilize the new policies to have a competitive advantage for identifying those properties that can be converted without any legwork at the, at the um, committee of adjustments uh, process. Okay. So, you know, single family homes, larger single family homes, maybe existing detached garages that can be converted. Yep. So the, the one we're working on right now, we're trying to convert the single family to four and then convert the detached garage to a laneway suite. Um, and we see that, as the low-hanging fruit right now to add a ton of value, lower our expenses, and lower the chances of being uh, not being able to convert multiple units. Um, that's where I've really pivoted the last couple of yep. years yep. because I see that this is going to keep me busy for years to come. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it's something that myself and my clients are doing. So 
um, yeah, that's that's something we're working on right now. Okay, so before we close this, I just wanted to touch on you mentioned as of right minor variance. You know, again, I, I, I want to ensure that everyone is tracking. So, if you could walk us through, you know, when you say like a property is as of right um, and it doesn't require minor variance, like uh, could you just walk us through? Yeah, what that means? yeah. My apologies if I am throwing out some of these terms <laughs> that may be technical to uh, you know some of your audience. Uh, as of right or by right, those they mean the same thing. Is when you are making changes to the property in a way that doesn't doesn't trigger a minor variance. So the bylaws for that city will have certain requirements. Uh, so, for example, the size of the house, how many units you can build, what the parking requirements are. Now, if you're not able to comply with those bylaws, you can request for a minor variance with the city and say, "Hey, you know what?" I, instead of your three parking spaces, I can only provide two. Can you give me permission? Right. Okay. And, you know, we're currently in an environment where the cities are very receptive to that. However, it's still a public process. Your neighbors will get involved and sometimes they may get, yeah. uh, you know, they <laughs> get the attention of the committee because they're not happy with your project and there's still risk, right? Yeah. But because of the changes we're seeing, Bill 23 where, you know, the housing crisis, um, because of these changes, the policies have made it a lot more favorable for homeowners to be able to do these these types of projects without having to go through that public process. Got it. And okay. I see that opportunity in the next few years. I think that in five years' time, it's all going to be priced in, just like how second suites are priced in now. In a few years, three units, four units, garden suites, Laneway suites, those are going to be priced in. So now it's kind of a land grab uh, if, if uh, you know, that's my opinion anyways. <laughs> Perfect. And as you, as you summarized earlier, how investors can find these properties is ensure that the lot size, one, the lot size allows for an additional dwelling unit as a detached, you know, building yeah. or yeah. the basement is large enough, you know, to have is separate units in terms of the height of the basements i like i know that cities have different height, height restrictions but you, you obviously want it to you know be like seven feet um, and above um there yeah. but outside of that are there any other key triggers or you know key things that an investor should look at to say you know what if i see this boom this means there's an upside here like you know is that something that we can start looking out for um when we are working these properties that, you know, a wholesaler can say, oh, wow, like this could potentially be a conversion project. You know, I'll look into it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you highlighted a very important one, which is height, right? Uh, especially if you do three units and higher. One yeah. very important distinction that your listeners might be aware, uh, might need to be aware of is that um, the, the, way they, the way the building code treats a two-unit house versus a three-unit plus house, very different, right? So Got two it. units and under is considered a house. Three units and more is considered a small building. So the height requirements in the basement are going to be higher. So you need just what you mentioned, seven feet when you have three units and higher. Got um, it. The fire separation is going to be different. The entrance and egress, the emergency egress escape requirements are going to be different, right? So there's not really one thing um, for them to look for, right? There's going to be many things, right? So you want to be, you want to be ed as educated as possible on the things, right? So things like the large... Uh, you know, height in the basement is the first one. Um, access to the individual units, okay. um, windows. You know, it, it, you know, in the basements. Uh, how large the lot is, right? Because if you're building a garden suite, you need to have a certain amount of separation between the the main house and that unit. And I yep. can't tell you what the number is because every municipality is going to be different. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So some of the things that I mentioned are code related. Some of the things that I mentioned are are bylaw re related according to that municipality. And the only way for someone to know is to really dig reach in out to and research. Yeah, and reach out to us. I really <laughs> recommend that you guys check out our YouTube channel because we put a lot of information on there. You go to our website. We have a lot of free documents. Um, and um, yeah, I, and there's a lot of documents online if you go look for it, right? So this is really, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, people get inspired after listening to this and be willing to go out and do more research before they, uh, you know, do any big real estate transactions. Because, you know, if they go buy buy something with the expectations that they're going to be, do some, be able to do something and then pay accordingly, you know, they might be disappointed, right?
Perfect. Okay. Well, you know, I can't thank you enough for all the bombs that you dropped, man. Thank you very, very much for you know sharing your experience. Before we let you go, as you know, we have a question that we ask everyone, which is what your greatest L in real estate has been and um, what you learned from it. Biggest L. Okay. Uh, I have a good one for you. It's not in wholesaling. I haven't done much wholesaling. A lot of properties that I purchased is just straight from straight from MLS. Uh, you know, believe it or not, if you you know if you know what you're looking for, you can actually find deals in MLS still. Um, so my biggest L is actually um, uh, you know one of the projects uh, you know with with a partner where we had a um, a multi unit uh, apartment, and you know I you know I probably wouldn't say it's the biggest L, but uh, from a financial side, it was. Because it was there was it was so challenging. It's such a big project that um, it it seemed it seemed like it had really big upside potential. Yeah. Uh, and my lesson from it really is to stay small. Is to just focus on doing these uh, multi-unit conversions because you can do them at a scalable level. So you can still you know do very well. Uh, the time frames are a lot shorter, and uh, being able to recognize that um, you know. As long as you stay consistent and focus on the fundamentals, you could actually you can actually do pretty well, right? Because I know there's a lot of people that are very excited about multifamily investing, yeah. And you know, there's definitely a lot of money to be made in that, uh, but there's a lot of competition, and yeah. uh, you know, there's a lot of capital involved, and it's a very long time frame, right? So you know, we have clients and investors that we work with where uh, you know they do very big projects, but they also do small projects because that kind of helps them maintain their cash flow yeah, and yeah. there's nothing wrong with with staying small and working on small projects you can do very well as well perfect thank you very much andy and um if anyone wants to connect with you learn more about everything we've said today like what's the best way for them to reach out to you yeah absolutely uh, our website sweeteditions.com we have three free guides that you can download that will have checklists and beginner's guides on all the stuff that we talked about uh you know, a lot of information again on YouTube channel, youtubes.com slash sweet editions. Uh, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. So yeah, follow us and uh, hopefully um, you all can, um, you know, hopefully we provided some value and uh, we see this as a great opportunity for investors and anybody working in this space as a professional, you know, whether you're a realtor, wholesaler, uh, you know, mortgage professional, contractor, uh, you know, doing conversions is going to be a big thing in the coming years. And I urge everyone to, you know, get involved. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you for this episode. I, I knew this was going to be a super pumped up episode because if I believe that the next few years are going to be huge for conversions, for housing densification, yeah. everything the government is doing, obviously is leaning towards that, like the housing crisis, like this is one of the biggest upsides that I know in the next five to 10 years. Everyone needs to know how to do this and just to get involved in this. So thank you very, very much for sharing your experience. Um, and, th you know, that brings us to the close of this episode. Um, thanks to everyone for listening to the Deuce Asset Wholesaling Podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And be sure to hit that subscribe button and the notification button as well so that you know when this episode drops and when the next one drops. So until then, remember, a deal a day keeps scarcity at bay.